And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Shortly after my adult conversion uh, to the Christian faith, I was still an undergraduate. Uh, I was at Michigan State University at the time, and I came across a small book called Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting. It was by a British evangelist and Bible teacher, Derek Prince. I appreciated the book's emphasis. It made clear that the that Christians, as long as we're in this world, have a responsibility uh, to give the world, you might say, uh, our best, our best uh, efforts, our best insights. But above all, we have a responsibility to bear witness to Christ. But Prince's emphasis was on spiritual means to influence political realities. So in this case, he's talking about prayer and fasting. These were the spiritual tools by which we could influence history. He wasn't negating uh, political involvement, but he believed Christians had supernatural means on engaging the world, and we were foolish not to use these means. I agree. But I also agree that it is foolish to look to acquiring political power or to look to political figures wielding political power to accomplish what only the regenerating power of the gospel can accomplish. There are very limit. There are limits to what we can do politically, uh, but what we can do through supernatural means is much more uh, important. And I, he made that case. I thought pretty well. I mean, our chief political responsibility is what prayer, but we are to bear witness to the king. That's a political action. I when I say that King Jesus that I take my cues from King Jesus and his kingdom, I'm saying that there is a different source of political power and influence that I recognize. So seek first the kingdom of heaven, God's righteousness, and all these lesser concerns about what to eat, what to wear, you know, where to sleep, all those things will follow. Now, I've always believed uh, that. I, ever since I was a young man, uh, not as a way of avoiding good stewardship of our resources, but as a reliable promise from our Creator that He's adequate for all of our needs if we put Him first. So, I come across an article today that gets me thinking along these lines. It, it's in Christianity Today magazine, and he, it talks about, again, the foolishness of looking to political figures and the use of political power to accomplish what only the gospel can accomplish. And Billy Graham, you know, is the great 20th century evangelical Protestant uh, uh, evangelist. Billy Graham tried. Listen to this story. Right after Nixon's election, he was elected uh, to presidency in November of 1968, Graham was invited to come to the White House the first Sunday after the inauguration so this is January 1969. And Billy Graham came and he tried to preach clearly enough so that the new president would hear this gospel message. Graham boldly engaged directly with Nixon's inaugural address. And he said Nixon was wrong to rely so much on himself, on his own ingenuity, on his own goodness. Nixon was wrong when he said that we need only to look within ourselves to solve the country's most pressing problems. The president and the American people, Graham preached, should humble themselves, turn, and put their trust in God. Or at least 
that's what he meant to say. Uh, as it turns out, <laughs> nobody in the East Room of the White House that day noticed what Graham was saying. After service, they all drank orange juice and coffee. They commented how nice it was winning an election, taking control of the White House, having a worship service under the famous portraits of George and Martha Washington. And they completely missed the call to humility because Graham couldn't bring himself to do it. Graham was the founder, uh, chief founder, but there were others, of Christianity Today magazine, which was the flagship journal of uh, evangelical Protestantism after the Second World War. What he was really saying is only clear when you look at what he quotes from the inaugural address and then look at what Graham said in his message. You can see when you compare them that Graham was directly countering the president, but no one noticed, not even the notoriously sensitive Nixon. The way he delivered that message, removing all of its prophetic sting, ended up leaving the president, who was trusting in himself rather than God, who was trusting in his own talent rather than the resources of heaven. He he left President Nixon feeling affirmed. There was no prophetic message there. And he kept getting invited to the White House because he had access to power and he wanted to keep access to power. And um, this is a temptation that people have. I mean, if you're a preacher and you get asked to preach uh, to somebody as powerful as the President of the United States, obviously you're going to want to maintain access to power in the future. And time and again, people shape uh, their message to appease people in power. It's a strong temptation. Uh, and it's not new, with Billy Graham. It's not, it is so common that it's almost a, seems to be a law of social reality. Uh, the Catholics, cozying up to uh, John Kennedy, I think of uh, Richard Cardinal Cushing of Boston, uh, publishes a book on the faith of JFK. Now, you know, JFK was raised Catholic, uh, but there's little evidence, uh, unlike his brother Bobby, little evidence that he embraced the faith in a serious way. And yet, Cardinal Cushing at that time said uh, Kennedy was the man. He was the only Catholic, the only member uh, of the, any minority group who had a chance in the foreseeable future of being president of the nation. Um, he said, permit me to say there were two great men of the 20th century who lived forever in the hearts of those who endeavored to live by the two greatest commandments of the Almighty, love of God and love of neighbor. Both were called John, John F. Kennedy and Pope John the Twenty-Third. And in this interview that he gave after Kennedy's death, about three years after his death, Cardinal Cushing is drawing these parallels between John Kennedy and Pope John the Twenty-Third as great pioneers of the Catholic ecumenical spirit. Uh, he also says in this interview, some folks have asked me if he was a practicing Catholic. Well, he was just as good a Catholic as I am, and he had similar ideas to mine. Well, I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't know Cardinal Cushing. There is a biography of him sitting on my shelf, which I've not broken open. But here's my point. He wanted to maintain the best face possible for this first Catholic president. You know, that was, it was a big step forward. Uh, for Catholics in America. I, I won't deny that. But there's always this temptation to somehow drop 
the biblical prophetic message when preachers get close to centers of power. Uh, I saw it in Detroit. I mean, I've seen it with mainline Protestant pastors. I've seen it with evangelical pastors. I've seen it with Catholics. I've seen it uh, when I was living in Detroit with the uh, Detroit pastors. Uh, you know, there's a Black Baptist Association there. And uh, one night, there was a big celebration at uh, Aretha Franklin's father's church. Now, by that time, he had been shot, and he was no longer uh, a pastor. But there was a new fellow there. I think his name was Robert Smith. And what they were doing that night, and it was a big blowout, they were inviting people in to celebrate the uh, mayor of Detroit at that time, Coleman Young. Now, Coleman Young had a reputation as a foul-mouthed politician who governed by anger and intimidation, who was not, you would say, faithful uh, to any uh, moral law when it comes to chastity. Uh, He's not the kind of person you want in your pulpit. No doubt about that. And yet that night, this was an eye-opener for me, that night, the language that is applied to King David in the Old Testament and secondarily applied to David's greater son, Jesus, that was applied to Coleman Young. He was called the Deliverer. He was called the Savior. Now, this is from a guy who had no interest whatsoever in the things of God. Why? Because many people believe that when they get close to centers of power, they have to um, preserve access. I say this, everybody feels it. If, if you've ever been close to being elevated to a new status in life, whether it has to do with wealth or power, there's a reluctance to challenge uh, those concentrations of power and wealth. And I think it doesn't matter if you're a black Baptist pastor in Detroit doesn't matter if you're a Catholic cardinal in Boston. It doesn't matter if you're a, a, an internationally known white Protestant evangelist like Billy Graham. There are temptations, and we should keep those in mind because we're not, we wouldn't be exempt from them either if we were elevated to positions of such prominence. But time and again you see it. It goes right back to the Old Testament. If you look at the monarchy in the Old Testament, Time and again, you see these prophets, called, called court prophets. The prophets who the king keeps on payroll because they bring him oracles, assuring him of military success. They bring him good news. Prophets who bring him bad news, they go through crises of vocation like Jeremiah did or Isaiah. This is just part of the temptation that Jesus warns against, the temptation to please men, to please the human beings around us, rather than to stick with the message of the gospel that he's called us to share. You know, Christ taught us to pray for a kingdom to come. And I want to stress again, I'm not, I've mentioned some of those illustrations here, but this is a universal problem. The reason Jesus has taught us to beware of being afraid of men is because he knew that we, in proclaiming a kingdom, 
which is yet to come in its fullness. We are vulnerable to being called those who insist on pie in the sky by and by. But he, he made that point to show us that the kingdom doesn't come through nationalism, doesn't come through cooperation with uh, you know civic entities, it doesn't come by any means other than the supernatural power of the gospel. I think it's an interesting point to keep in mind that the message of Jesus applies to everyone.